Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 357. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 357 you're listening to. My guest today is the return of my friend Michael James, producer, engineer, mixer, songwriter, man of many talents. Yep, he's come back to pay us a visit and talk to us about what's new since we talked to him many, many moons ago. He's got a new album out, Shelter in Place, which we're going to talk about. And we're going to talk about Dolby Atmos because he's been uh, getting into Dolby Atmos and advising me as well on that journey, which has been uh, great to be able to reach out to him. But uh, really glad to have him back. We're going to talk about a bunch of stuff. Looking forward to having you hear that chat. So Michael James coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Allow me to do a Dolby Atmos update with you. All right. So, you know, if you've been listening to the show, you know that I've been headed into the world of Dolby Atmos. And I think I think my journey is probably one of the slowest journeys to get there. And it's probably excruciating for some of you listening who think, God, just buy the crap already and get going. And uh, I'm with you there. But I'm sticking to my guns here on, on the financial end of it. I'm really avoiding... A, draining the bank account, and B, charging anything. I'm sticking to the the method of sell what I have to pay for what I want. That has been working great for me. So if you don't want to do that, that's totally cool. It's a personal decision. You know me on this show. I, I definitely don't advocate charging stuff up. Although I have heard some people chime in and um, kind of complain to me like, hey man, you know, financing is actually a business savvy way to do things. Well, if that works for you, great. Go into debt. If that's what you think is going to work, great. But for me, I operate in a different way. I'm not going to tell you one way is the better way. I just, you know, on to the Dolby Atmos thing. I finally got my uh, speakers. So I sold my Amphion speakers. They were, they were fantastic speakers. I really enjoyed using them. And then I just kind of came to the conclusion that I wanted to do something different. And so I have chosen PMC speakers for doing this. So I sold the Amphians to, to uh, former WCA guest McKay Garner actually bought them from me. So thanks, McKay. He's got a whole Dolby Atmos thing going in, in Amphian speakers. So I chose PMCs and I got result sixes for my left, center, and right. So I still have to get my sub and I still have to get the surrounds. And I still have to get the money to pay for the surrounds. So right now I'm staring at the three result sixes. They're considered the kind of, I guess, the entry level uh, or or price friendly uh, feature limited version of PMC speakers. But I'm going to make a confession here. And all of you may just go, oh, my God, are you nuts? I bought these without hearing them first. And I know some of you are gasping right now. Oh, my God. But I, I got them, and when they arrived, uh, all I could say was, "Is okay, please sound good. Because <laughs> you know when you get something sometimes and you think, well, okay, it's not, it's not going to work out. But you start to figure out, well, maybe I could make it work. Friends, these Result 6s are some of the best speakers I've heard. I'm in shock at how good they sound. Now, there's a caveat to that in that everybody's room is different and everybody's room responds differently to certain speakers, right? So I had a pair of Klein and Hummel 0300s many years ago, and I had them at my big studio in San Francisco, and so when I brought everything home, those were the speakers that I had alongside some NS10s, and they just didn't work in my room. And that's why I ultimately switched to the Amphion, which worked better, but the Result 6s really, really worked the best so far out of any speaker I've heard. And, you know, I mean, they are... They're still pricey for speakers, yeah, to some. But for me, I was like, this is a great price for what these are and how good they sound. I'm in shock at how good they sound. I'm also greatly relieved 
because I was like, oh God, I don't want to box these back up and send them back. Please sound good. And, and when they did, I was just so happy. So result sixes are in, had to buy a third speaker stand. I've had some Zaor stands. I still have them, I, but I had them in kind of a walnut finish, black walnut, I guess. I tried like crazy to get a third black walnut. And all I could find was either black or black cherry. The word that I got from Zaor from via Sweetwater, who I bought from, they just said, if you're waiting on that, you're gonna be waiting for a long time. We have no clue when we're gonna get those in. So rather than wait, I just got black cherry, which is a slightly different color, but whatever, you know, I'm not gonna sweat it. It's close enough, it's wood, it looks good. So that's my center. I did buy the surround amp, which is a crown. It's an eight channel amp. Uh, I'm trying to see the model number from here. Eight slash 600 in. I bought that used on eBay because those amps are normally about seven grand. And I got it used on eBay for about two grand. Now, unfortunately it came and the rear rack rails got smushed a bit in the packaging, which is no big deal. I bent them back but there was a little bit of uh, external damage to a switch on the back. So I, I hounded the guy who sold it to me. And I said, look, I don't want to return this. I'm sure it works, but can you get me this replacement thing? And he did. Apparently he used to work for Harmon, which is great. So that, that completely worked out. I got a good deal on that. Um, so yeah, what's left? These surround speakers. I'm going to go with the PMC CI30s. And um, that's going to be a chunk of dough. So I have some stuff that I, I'm, I'm selling. I've been trying to sell it locally first, and that seems to not work as much. So looks like I'm going to go to Reverb with that. So if you follow me on Reverb, you can look that up probably in the next couple of weeks. I'll put that, I'll list that stuff. So if any of you are interested in some, some stuff, I'm going to be selling some stuff. What else? Um, yeah, I got to make a decision about the sub and then the monitor controller. I'm a big fan of Grace. I've got a Grace M905 stereo controller, so I'm going to be selling that at some point to pay for a Grace M908. And that is how it's going to go down. Yeah. Very excited. And you're probably wondering, Let's. this is working class audio, right? So is there work to be had? Yes, there is work. People keep calling me and saying, are you set up yet? Because I'm, I'm wanting to do something. And I've got some clients lined up Trying to keep everybody patient. The original thought was, oh, you'd be ready by October, but that ain't happening. Things are just moving a little slow. So probably by December is what I'm hoping. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping. So by, you know, get it all set up. Of course, Christmas will hit and the holiday season and all that. Then it's off to the races, right? Hopefully January 1st, you know, or, you know, first week of January, I can, you know, be open for business on the Atmos front. And I'll continue to, let you know how that goes you know if you're thinking about doing it you know there's many many ways to do it it's a deep subject i know and that's why i'm trying to tell you what i'm doing so you get a glimpse into the, the process i'll continue to inform you and let you know what i know because i know some of you want to get into it and it's a big scary subject because it's a lot of speakers and it, it can be potentially a lot of money and there's some uh there's some various ways you can do it so if you're thinking about doing it, yeah, and, and you're waiting to find out how it works out for me, well, stick around. I'll continue to let you know what happens. But that's it. Not much else to tell for now. And that's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might've met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might've heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ 
employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. The return of Michael James here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Michael James, welcome back to the podcast. It is such a pleasure to be back here, Matt. I'm a huge fan of your show and of you as a person. Oh. You know, people who listen may not necessarily know who you are, but I do, and you're just freaking awesome. Oh, well, thank you. You're welcome. It's been a while. The episode you were originally on was number 125. It came out May 8th of 2017. Can you believe it's been that long? No, I didn't realize it was that long. It feels like three weeks ago. And I listened back to the episode. Actually, I listened back to it at like almost two and a half, three times speed. That was a little much, but... <laughs> But yeah, that was an interesting conversation that we had back then. And I have many questions now since okay. that since that time. So listeners, I'll put a link in the show notes to number 125 there so you can go back and listen to that original conversation. But in short, Michael moved up to Petaluma, California, which is somewhat north of me here in Lafayette, shortly before we talked at that time. And... That was a bit of a change for you, and I came up and visited you, and your studio that you're in now did not look like it does now. It uh, looks fantastic, by the way. It's I know Thank it's you. been a huge amount of work you've done. So from Los Angeles to Petaluma, that's a big change, and I'm sure you had your ideas and your goals about what that would entail then in 2017. What has happened since? How is it? How has it worked out? Are you are you happy that you made that move? I'm I'm happy. For me, it's kind of like a dream come true. It's one of those dreams though that you, you didn't even know you were having until you actually start living it or having it. And what I mean by that is that down in LA, I loved what I was doing, but I was kind of on a treadmill. I was mixing on a an off year, 250 tunes per year, and a good year, 300. And that was just going, and I loved it, but it was like nonstop, and I, I rarely had weekends to spend doing my other pursuits. And again, look, I'm by no means complaining. It's everything you dream for. But then we came up here, and I was sort of forced into having to build a studio and to be out of work for a bit because no room, no mixes, right? And going through the permitting, seven weeks to get that happening, and then doing the construction on the room and getting it the way that I wanted it. I mean, that just takes time. So then I hit the ground running and and it was like nothing had changed in terms of that treadmill, I call it, you mm -hmm. know, where the, the mixes were happening. And, and you and a couple of our buddies actually talked about some ways to make the Bay Area potentially a destination, but the pandemic hit. So all of a sudden you get all these panicked musicians who think that 
they might never work again or worse. They might be dead in two weeks. And it changed things and it gave me an opportunity to do some stuff that I wanted to do and basically slow down, but not be worried about making a living. And the technology advances that were already in place, but truly spurred on by the pandemic, serendipitously, you ended up having more Zoom meetings, more FaceTime video meetings, and audio movers listen to. <laughs> I know you use that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like, it's so great to be able to look at somebody who is in Nigeria or Russia or Australia, and they're just virtually sitting next to you like a talking head on a screen mm -hmm. as you're doing fader moves. And that way you have no downtime with excessive revisions because everybody's invested in the process right from the ground up. So to circle back to putting this together to answer your question, it's like, I feel like I really hit a stride now where I don't feel like I'm becoming rich, but I'm not worried about paying the mortgage or eating. And I have this balance where if I want to go out in the morning and ride my bicycle, I can. Uh, if I want to start a record company, which I did again, <laughs> I can. And I'm not stressed about taking the time out to do this interview. I'm like, I couldn't wait all week. I was like, man, now you're going to talk. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> it's nice, I'm sure, to have your home base there built to the way you'd like it built so yeah. that you can work in the way that you like to work. And for better or for worse, the pandemic and the forced use of Zoom and these technologies, personally, not too much had changed for me. And so I was like, well, okay, well, it's just business as usual. But was it an adjustment for you to have to get on Zoom and do that? Or did you embrace it? I'd been doing it for about 10 years. Not so much the Zoom thing, but the streaming. I used to use not Audio Hijack. What was the one before that? Nicecast. Nicecast. Yes. Yeah. So when it had its built-in server, the thing was flawless for me. You know, sometimes you'd have latency. It might be anywhere from two seconds to seven seconds. <laughs> so you had to make sure to mute your microphone. Yeah. And somebody wanted to actually look at me. Typically we would do a little FaceTime or WhatsApp or Skype or, you know, any of the ones with the video services, we'd look at each other for a few minutes and say, okay, cool. Now we've seen each other. Let's, let's switch to audio only <laughs> so that we, uh, don't have to worry about latency, but now I have, I don't have to worry about that at all because they finally got fiber in Petaluma. And so like overnight, my bill went down by a factor of three. Like I was paying what, 160, 180 bucks a month for those two DSL lines and the static IPs. And now I pay like 60 a month for fiber. That's 1000 up and 1000 down. Oh, I'm so jealous. Yeah, well, come on over, hang out. There's plenty of bandwidth for both of us. <laughs> Let me just, I'm just going to move in and, and run, run my operations from your house. Well, I would say that that would be a lot of fun, but you'd be missing out on that new room that you're doing. That's right. That's right. So we have many, many stops to make here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with this. What we're talking about, audience, if you're not up to speed here, is Dolby Atmos. You know through some of my rants that I'm doing it. Michael also has done it, and I've been talking with him a bit about just setups and the technical and the artistic and whatnot. What brought you to the conclusion to do Atmos in your room? It's a long path to get here, but somewhere between 2005 and 2008, I ended up being fascinated by DVD audio and SACD, and I liked lossless surround stuff. And so I'd been doing records, you know, I would tell people like, hey, if you want a 5.1 mix, just throw me an extra 500 bucks and I'll do it right after I'm done with the main mix. And relative to the main mix, you know, another 500 bucks, at least back in those days when the money was crazy flowing, everybody's like, well, that's a no brainer. This may come in handy someday. And, you know, most of the time those mixes never saw the light of day because people put out the stereo album. But it was still nice to have. And now everybody has that and they can make Atmos mixes out of the 5.1, right? You know, you just run it through render or just straight through and output an ADM WAV file. And all that stuff that we did 15 years ago now has value again, right? So it was cool to do that. Um, and I just liked the way that it sounded. So I was lamenting the death of DVD audio as a format. 
And I have a buddy here in town, Brad Holy, who works with Dolby, not on the Atmos side of things. He's more on the cinematic side, movie theaters and stuff. And, you know, as we were just talking about surround geekery, he's like, you know, you should really check out Atmos. We're making a big push for music. So I checked it out and I thought, wow, all the boxes are ticked here. I like it. I want to get my feet wet with it. And I started messing around with it. And I said, holy crap, the possibilities are mind boggling here in terms of spatial stuff and not having to use so much compression and EQ and all that. It's like there's room for everything. So just purely creatively, I loved the idea. I was a little bit scared about the price tag because not only do you have to buy speakers, well, you don't have to, you can do it on headphones, right? You can do it binaurally, but I, I like speakers and I want to reward the people who have these excellent home theater systems instead of just a pair of earbuds. I want to make sure that a mix translates for them discreetly. So I wanted to have 7.1.4 system. Didn't care about certifying the room, even though it technically is a certified Dolby Atmos room, but it's a private room, right? It's not commercial. Nobody's going to come over here. I'm using it all the time. So when I thought beyond the creativity about the possibilities of actually monetizing this stuff, I thought, well, shoot, I've been mentoring all these local artists. We have some really great tunes. What if I curate them and give them a showcase with a you know a new revamped alternator records website that is a singles only label and I'll do stereo and surround and atmos mixes for them people and we'll have a competitive edge and it just so happens that Dolby started pouring money into the marketing and promotion of the new format with good reason things sometimes don't catch on because people aren't willing to go the distance in terms of the promotion mhm but you know you say something enough and it becomes the truth. That's a double-edged sword there. But in this case, it's actually a good thing. It's easy. It's a no-brainer, right? And it sounds great. And I have a competitive advantage now. I'm Even my new album, Shelter in Place, which was released September 24th, shameless plug, it's streaming in Atmos and Lossless on Apple Music already. Mm. And where else could you do that before? And now in the first week that the record is out... People are calling me asking if I can do Atmos mixes of their album because they heard it, they liked it. So again, this is a almost a rambling answer, but I think the information in there is useful. You know, number one, I love it. Just love the possibilities of the format. And number two, it was a good business decision, which kind of makes me want to go down that rabbit hole of talking about what you need to do it after six months of trying to figure out what I needed even with Dolby's help, and they were incredibly helpful. I kind of got it down to like one sentence worth of telling you what you need. Well, yeah. Tell me from your perspective, if somebody's like, wow, yeah, I'm, I've heard so much about this. I really want to get into this. What do I need to do? It's a little hard to, in my opinion, and others may disagree, to have just a central point to go, okay, I want to do Dolby Atmos. Where do I go? Other than mm -hmm. my local pro audio dealer who's ready to sell me it a crap ton of speakers. Right, right. Yeah, so that was pretty much my same question. And as I started exploring the ways to get there, to get to where you need to be, first I need to figure out well, where it is you, that you need to be. And ultimately, you have to have a set of headphones, right? Stereo headphones so you can listen to a binaural mix. And many people start their Atmos mixes on headphones before putting them out onto speakers because not a lot of people have the opportunity to listen to 12 speakers, right? So they start with headphones, then they go elsewhere and they check it and go home and make a few tweaks. So from my perspective, here's the stuff that you need. If you're going to do it at a professional level, you got to go beyond the headphones. You have to have a DAW that supports it. I use Pro Tools. I think Cubase, Nuendo, I think they already have Atmos stuff built in like Pro Tools does. And I think Logic is heading there as well. I think sure. so. So that makes it easy, right? Because you can spend a lot of money on a DAW or you can spend a little money. And then you need a way to listen to it and you need speakers. So whatever number of speakers you have, the renderer, oh, that's the other piece of software that you need, the Dolby Atmos renderer, that will scale stuff to your listening environment. You know, if you have a 7.14 system, it will output stuff on all the 12 speakers. And if you have a 2.1 system, it will fold down and you can listen that way. So yeah, so speakers, monitor controller, 
software and headphones. So in my case, I knew what speakers I wanted to get. Another plug for PSI audio, by the way. <laughs> uh, but there, there are plenty that are great out there. You're sneaking other manufacturers into my show, Michael. No, no, yeah, a, I know. Okay. I'm kind of thinking along the lines of like they used to do with movies in the 70s where you'd have this can of Pepsi right in front of you. Right. This huge product placement. <laughs> Doing product placement on my show. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. But yeah, you need to be raking in money for that. Yeah, so I knew what speakers I wanted. And of course, they were expensive. But it's cost of doing business. And I've heard other speakers that are much less expensive, like one-fifth the price, and they'll still do the job. So I think really there is something for everybody out there. Because remember, you could do all of your critical, let's say, equalization and cleanup moves and, and compression and stuff like that. You could do that in your stereo mix and then just spread stuff out. You know, So if you think of Atmos as a giant panner after you've done your critical listening, you could pan on... 12 iPhones, you know, through their speakers. <laughs> oh my God. That sounds <laughs> you know, like a nightmare. <laughs> well, it does sound like a nightmare, but the point is that you could do it, right? If you start thinking in there, those terms, like it's it's just a, a panner. So really in my case, the most challenging part was figuring out how to monitor because I'm a big fan of dangerous music uh-huh. and I use their ST and SR monitoring system. And I had enough channels to accommodate 5.1, but to go to 7.1.2, I had to buy another SR. I had to have that modified. And then I had to have the remote, they call it dangerous remote. Right. I had to have that modified as well. And then, you know, you want to add another couple more speakers or four more speakers, you have to get yet another SR, which had been discontinued. Now I think they're making them again due to demand. But you do that or you go out and you get a grace controller or you get something else that exists. Yeah. And I know there are, I, I can't talk about it, but I know of a number of manufacturers who are actually making controllers from the ground up now, or they're in development. They're developing stuff from the ground up that's going to accommodate Atmos systems with built-in delays and all that stuff. Yeah. So in short, really on the gear end of things, just a, a comment on the speakers. I mean, Mm-hmm. You know, there's speakers come in all kinds of price points. Yep. And I think that what's important is, is you know, I've heard a few people say, well, I don't have $100,000 to put into that. Well, it does. It shouldn't have to cost you $100,000, first off. Agreed. Yeah, right. Number of manufacturers have speakers on the lower end of the price point that are perfectly usable and legit. And the artist, I don't think, really gives a shit which speakers you have. They are interested in right. the result. So if you could do your job on a lower price speaker, great. If you want to spend more, great. You're going with Dangerous. I'm going with Grace on the monitor mm-hmm. controller. There's no one single recipe here. There's a, a framework, and then you can adapt to that framework. That's right. Yeah. And, th- you know, you said the word adapt, and that really makes it so much easier to wrap your head around Atmos if you want to create Atmos-enabled mixes. Yeah. It's about adaptability. It's about scaling. It's about being able to stay in your lane, but still create things as if you were like $10 million richer because there's something for everybody. And And another demystifying thing, I don't know if that's a word, but another way that you can really think about creating content in Atmos is, like I said a minute ago, think of it as the ultimate panner. Think about panorama, not just left to right, but also like a half of a sphere, a hemisphere. You know, you've got your circle on your ear level, but then you have a dome above you. So if you think of, of Atmos in that way, that it's a panner and that there is a way to scale the cash outlay to your needs and your means then it becomes a lot more simple. Obviously, we could talk the entire podcast about Atmos, but I, I have other questions about some things that you've already mentioned. So let's quickly address the record label aspect of what you mentioned earlier. So you said that you essentially started it up again. So Alternator Records was a label before, is, is what you're saying. That is correct. Okay. So I started Alternator in 97, I think. And I was doing some joint ventures with other labels where my logo would be on it. And it was basically another branding type thing because mm-hmm. you know, I was not a full service label. I was basically about artist development. I would find them and then other people would foist them 
because that's what the music business is, finders and foisters. Mm. So yeah, I did a few of those things. And then within three years, I was pretty much full-time mixing for the next 20-ish years without nearly as much producing. So the label basically became a production company. And recently, since moving up to the Bay Area, you and I had discussions about different things to do. And in those discussions, like I said, I did the mentoring thing and just started finding these great artists that would otherwise not have a chance to be heard and leveraging my discography. So like if somebody searches for Courtney Love, they might find Randy Seal, for example. You haven't heard of him, but you will. He's a great gospel artist. And you get that sort of cross-pollinization. So Alternator Records was something that you did starting in 97, but then you reconstituted it during the pandemic, specifically to not only collaborate with other artists, but for the creation of your new record. Yes. And I'm not even sure where to start answering that because they're both interesting stories. So let's put my record on the back burner for a minute. So the collaboration with new artists is that I think there's good stuff out there. And I'm sort of, I'm at a point in my life right now where I get to experience cool things and I want to share them because nothing, no experience is ever as sweet when you do it alone, right? It's always sweeter when you can share it with somebody. So I'm hearing all this cool stuff. People may say music is dead, but no, it's not. It's vibrant. You just don't know where to look for it necessarily. So I want to help with that and, again, leverage my track record to give people opportunities to be heard. And also something that's very noteworthy about this is that the roster is very diverse. We have everything from people of different colors to people of different genders. We we got it all. And it's not because I wanted to do that, but just that's where my circle of, of friends and clients lives. So it's kind of cool that you may hear an R&B track from somebody and it's going to be good because I'm curating it. And then you could hear an Americana tune. And one other thing that's really exciting to me about the label is that we're doing it without putting any artists in debt. You know, like you were signed by major labels. So you know that the minute that you sign, it's not just about that first album. It's about the next seven, but with no guarantee that they're ever going to come out. Right. (laughs) And then your first one comes out and you have all these recoupable expenses and they get carried forward. So everything gets cross-collateralized. So you lose 400000 on your first album, and then you make some of it up on your second album, and now you're only $300,000 in debt, and the circle goes on, the downward spiral, right? It keeps right. continuing. And by the way, there are plenty of good things about major labels. But in this case, there's none of that because I'm putting out some albums, including my own, as you mentioned, but I'm starting it very manageably. It's, a, it's singles only for the most part. And the deals are really simple. It's like, okay, we're going to do this thing together. We're going to share in it together. We're going to do the work together. I'll help produce it and write it and get it out there, put it in a distribution system. And you're going to do all this social media homework and we are going to help you with it. And if the stars align just right, you know, we're going to have some success and hopefully get some placements. And that's really important. That's how I think we're going to make money. I think that's how anybody's going to make money, you know, get a commercial or a TV show or a movie or whatever to license your master. So moving beyond the label itself into my album, I figured that my album could sort of be the test case for how well we can do it with having limited resources. Because the thing I was going to mention about the other artists is that not only are they not going into debt, I'm not going into <laughs> debt either. Very key. Yeah, yeah. And It's not like I'm not spending money. I mean, dude, (laughs) money has been spent. And uh, in some ways, I feel like I'm hemorrhaging it. But the smart thing that I did was I grabbed a shoebox, well, a few shoeboxes, and I just started throwing money into them that was not earmarked for something else. So I said, when I have this sum of money, now I can go out and risk it. It'd be kind of like if you're going to Las Vegas and you're you're not addicted to gambling, mm-hmm. but you want to have some fun. And let's say you don't even believe in gambling. Like I personally, I, I do not think gambling is a good thing, but it can be entertainment and there's nothing wrong with entertainment. So take five bucks, 500, 5,000, whatever you want. And you put that in a little box and you go over to the gambling tables and you see if you can increase it or you see if you can lose it. But 
when you do lose it, you don't go to the ATM and get some more money. So that's kind of the way that I'm doing the label here. Mm -hmm. I already prepared to lose all the money that I'm putting into it and decided that if I was thinking about it that way, it wasn't going to be a real risk to me. It'd be like entertainment, but that's not a bad thing, right? Because that's what we do. We're entertainers in the arts. And this is really important for people of, of color. It's not that I want to single anybody out, but I do believe that we as white males in America have a certain amount of privilege. Benefit of the doubt maybe is a better way to say it than privilege. We get the benefit of the doubt more than people of color do. And I'd say that at least half the roster at this point is people of color. And I've been told by my artists that the fact that they don't have to worry about cross-collateralization and don't have this heavy weight hanging on their shoulders, that this is a big a big deal for them. And it just lets them get into this creative zone without the stress of like, oh shit, what's going to happen in the future? Does that make any sense, Matt, what I'm trying to say there? Yeah. Basically, nobody's spending any money or, or, or not going into debt. Nobody's going into debt. Yeah. yeah I'm spending end of the money. Day. Everybody's spending life force. Right. But we're not going to have to remortgage the house or miss the rent payment or go hungry and eat nothing but ramen noodles for seven months. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it, and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro-looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. And I don't, you didn't mention this in this conversation, but you've mentioned it in past conversations with me when we're just shooting the shit on FaceTime. You're taking a slightly different approach here as a producer, as an engineer, as a, I don't want to say studio owner, but yeah, you have a studio, you own it. So yes, you're a studio owner. So Rather than trying to monetize that aspect of it, you're actually collaborating with artists songwriting-wise. Everybody puts in, as you said, their life force, their time, their mm -hmm. energy. Yeah. You've got this studio. It's a tool. Everything can get completed and done. And then everybody needs to contribute social media-wise and promotion-wise. Correct. So it's a little bit different of an angle. So it speaks to those engineers or producers or studio owners who consider themselves worthy songwriters. Mm -hmm. That's not something that is in my wheelhouse. So that's something I, I don't think I would ever consider, but I like that because it's just a different way of artistically contributing, getting the engineering nerdy part of yourself involved and putting something out in the world that you're proud of. And it's just a different way to skin a cat. I, I know that the PETA folks would hate me for saying that, but... At figure of speech. Figure um, of speech, right. Let's actually talk about this a bit because, yes, I am a songwriter and that works into my business model for the label. Mm -hmm. You don't consider yourself a songwriter, so your business model might be a little bit different than mine, but there's still a business model there for you and for anybody else who has a facility and has this creative spirit 
and still wants to be entrepreneurial and create opportunities and make the world a better place and have fun while doing it. So I'll share with you what my business model at the moment is with respect to the label. As the co-writer of the material, I get 50% of the songwriting and 50% of the publishing. And I will keep the writing, my share of it. The artist, co-writer, collaborator keeps their share of it. They keep their share of the publishing. What I do with my share of the publishing is that I put everything back into the people who are working with me at the label. Our share of the publishing pie gets split up in, in according to some sort of a formula. And I get that publishing because I created the song, right? I, mm-hmm. I wrote half the song. But if you don't have that, where's your business model, you might ask. And I will tell you where it is. There's nothing preventing you from owning or co-owning the master. As a matter of fact, in my opinion, if you're creating it with the artist, you're becoming a label, you're providing label services, even if it's out of your garage or your breakfast nook, wherever you're doing it, your backpack on the Greyhound bus, you're still being a studio and a label. And I mean, there's a precedent for recording studios doing demo deals with artists. And the classic demo deal was, we get you signed to a deal, we end up producing your record and you record it here and you pay our full fee. And we take a percentage of your recording fund or signing bonus or whatever. And that was fine because without that, the artist would have had no opportunity to do any recording. So if you Think about that model and you move it to the modern day. Well, everybody's got a studio. They have a laptop with good software and you can make a record. But what they don't have is Matt Boudreaux or Michael James or anybody else who's out there who is willing to partner with them to make something happen. And, you know, even the good book says something to the effect of two people working together for a common cause are a thousand strong. And I find that that permeates my life day in and day out and has for nearly 60 years. So the way that you can do it is if you're providing some sort of label service, which is could be as simple as putting up a website and curating the music and making a buzz around it so that people come to your new website to discover new music, yeah, you should own the master or part of the master. Basically what you do is you just find a deal that's a win-win for everybody. Because if both sides aren't winning, it's not a good deal. Yeah. Or if it's lopsided. I mean, look at look at the car that you drive. If your wheels aren't balanced, you still have four wheels, but even this tiny, tiny little piece of lead can make all the difference between your car running off the road or driving in a straight line. So right. all kinds of business models, that's my point. And everybody who has any creative desire combined with an entrepreneurial desire should find an artist that they love and are willing to go to bat for And don't think about making an album. Just think about making one great song. One great song. Do it. Have fun with it. If it's fun, you can do another one, even if you don't make money from it. So yeah, Mm. there's a business model in there somewhere for you. And if I can continue your car analogy there with the wheels, when you have your wheels aligned and balanced, you get far better gas mileage. Now, yes. so if you have a balanced situation with your business relationships with artists, you will go further. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm going to even add to that analogy. If the car is an artist, really make sure that it's a car that you want to drive. If you want to drive a sports car, but you're in an economy sedan, that may not be a good fit for you. And if you want to drive a minivan and you're in a roadster, that might not be a good fit for you. So stick to the stuff that you love and people that you love. Yeah. So we've talked about the the label and let's bring the record into perspective so you are an artist and have been an artist a signed artist at that in the past you've mm-hmm. an audience if you listen to episode 125 you'll get the whole lowdown on michael's past so during the pandemic and in your desire to do this record were you just kind of like wow i haven't done anything for myself for a while artistically is that where that stemmed from No, no. I mean, it's crazy the way that it came about. So I was working with Jason Cropper, who was one of the founding members of Weezer. And Jason had actually a few producers on the album. And because we were doing some work remotely, we hadn't all been in a room together. I think Camilo Landau was a producer and Mm. uh, Brian Joseph Kenny was a producer. And Brian is one of these Renaissance men. 
he's one of these undiscovered talents for the most part because he doesn't get out there and promote himself. He just kind of does his thing and he's just one of these gems in life. So when the pandemic started, but the lockdown hadn't kicked in in the days leading up to the lockdown, Brian was over here at the studio and he said, hey, you working on anything that's kind of fun, that's like your own stuff? And I said, well, yeah, I just wrote this little ditty called, I tell myself that everything's okay. And it was clearly about the pandemic. And it was a joke novelty song where it was like this tune about us all just like burying our heads in the sand and just saying like, there's no problem. La, 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 la. I can't hear you. You know, one of those type things. Clearly a novelty. And I wrote it in like less than an hour and demoed it in less than an hour just because I wanted to hear what it sounded like. And it was fun. It made me laugh. And then I was going to put it away forever. But, you know, Brian was over and he's got a good sense of humor. I thought he'd like it. And he heard it and he just said, dude, this captures the spirit of the time really great. Got anything else that you're working on? And I played him a couple of other ideas that were just things that I just wanted to hear and nobody had made them before. And I wanted to listen to it. So I made it for my own personal playlist. Mm. And he said, this is capturing the spirit of the times. Have you thought about doing an album of this stuff? And I said, well, my next album is going to be covers. I was going to do, I can't make you love me, the Bonnie Raitt, Bruce Hornsby thing. I was going to do Don't Dream It's Over, Crowded House. I was going to do most of these instrumental. And he said, well, I like your originals. Why don't you think about making an album? I was like, well, I was thinking about this title, Shelter in Place. And I got this really cool photograph that was just taken last week. And it's the one on the booklet where I'm holding the guitar with these red gardening gloves that look like the guitar is bleeding mm-hmm. and I'm gazing heavenward. And I said, yeah, so you know, I got the picture. I got the title. What the hell? Might as well make an album. And then I connected with Aaron Durr, younger brother of Jameson Durr, our mutual friend. As it turns out, I'm talking about serendipity. Aaron had just moved to my neighborhood from LA. He was working with Travis Carlton and some other people. And my assistant, Brett Grossman and Aaron had played in bands together and they're good friends. Brett was here and he said, hey, Aaron just moved here. So Aaron came over and we just clicked and Aaron heard the tune. And, you know, I asked him, Hey, you want to sing this? Cause Brian thinks it's good enough to be on my album and he said, sure, I'd like to sing it, but I'd like to sing it as a better song than a novelty song. And there's, there's a real good heart in there. And so I invited him in to co-write it with me. And we ended up creating this story about two lovers who were suddenly separated as if the Berlin wall had just showed up right in between them when the one person goes out and rides her bike across town to pick up flowers and chocolates for her lover. Then she turns around to get back home, but can't because there's a wall. And the wall was the pandemic. So we tapped into the feeling that everybody that we knew who was a musician was happening. Panic, fear, love, loss, mortality, the whole thing. And the album basically just sort of stemmed out of that. And within a few tunes, I knew that this was something that could be a little bit bigger than me and bigger than the times. Look, I don't want to make it sound self-important, but I just sort of tapped into a concept that, I mean, it felt a little like a rock opera meets a Robert Altman film, you know, with sort of this revolving tapestry of stories that somehow connected to each other and shined a light on the spirit of the times. Hmm. I mean, that's really where it came from. It was purely this artistic thing. There are a few songs that are very autobiographical, but for the most part, I was thinking about conversations and news articles that I'd read and just trying to tie the whole thing together. couple side notes, audience. So I didn't realize Jameson Durer had a, had a brother named Aaron. Audience, I'll put a link to Jameson Durer's episode, which is episode number 211, because he's a former WCA guest. Did you mix the album in Atmos? Of course you did, I did. right? Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's streaming on Apple. Yeah, go listen to it. I want to bring this back to Petaluma because I think that, that that is an interesting element here. What do you see moving forward living in Petaluma and just how the world operates now? Because your times in LA, the way that all worked, it's not the same. And right. you've moved on, you've moved to a different place, you operate differently, I'm sure. What do you see for the future as far as your continued participation in record production and in mixing and songwriting and living in Petaluma. Do you feel that you can continue to do all that with the same momentum that you did in LA? I see a leap of faith 
And what I mean by that is that I just don't want to worry about how far in advance I'm booked or if there's any downtime coming up. I just, you know, I've been doing this 40 years now professionally. I mean, I was signed at 19 Mm -hmm. and I struggled a lot. I would have lived in my car from time to time if I even had a car. And look, it's not woe is me. It's just like we've all done our version of that. So what I think I'm I'm hoping to do is just follow the music and follow the creativity, follow the spirit, and just be willing to go with the flow and adapt to the way that times change. A lot of people in 2008 went out of business because they didn't want to lower their fees. And instead mm. of me worrying about that, I just said, well, okay, you can't afford my fee. What do you got? How can we make this work for both of us? Maybe we can do it faster. Maybe we can do one thing great instead of 10 things not so great. So there's always a way if you're going to flow with it. And my personal flow, I think, is is really going to be about a teamwork thing. You know, the label, it's teamwork, right? The fact that we're doing this and we've helped each other out with some things, that's teamwork. I like the idea of being aware that I'm surrounded by love. And I like the idea of instead of just 100% having a plan, I like the idea of having a plan, but making 50% of that plan being open to serendipity and changes. You have a goal, right? you know, the goal post is, but you know, if all of a sudden you see a different path to get there, go ahead, take it, smell the roses, do something fun. And so to be more specific and less, less ethereal about this answer, when it's safer to get together in person. I love the idea of doing more Bay Area centric things like the music expo that you brought me into. Mm -hmm. I think that that was great, but yeah, you know, really staying local and developing the talent that we have here. And if somebody comes from elsewhere, even if it's on a zoom meeting or whatever, and audio movers listen to streaming plugin, That's fine too. I just like the idea of doing some beautiful things with beautiful people, beautiful artists, people I love, just doing cool stuff. Yeah. I sound like an idiot when I'm saying that, but really there's sort of a purity and a freedom of just saying like, well, shit, I have some things that I want to do that involve producing and mixing other artists, making more records of my own. Although frankly, after Shelter in Place, it's like I want to step away from writing my own stuff because- I'm a little intimidated by trying to top it. (laughs) I know that sounds funny. But yeah, this is a call to you and to our other colleagues who are up here in the Bay Area. When we can get together and do some great things for the community, let's think of the community as if it's a garden. We want our garden to be beautiful. Okay, so based on that answer, what would your advice be to others who are not living in the Los Angeleses and the Nashvilles of the world or the Londons of the world. If you're living in a small town and you're living in a small town, just as Mm -hmm. I am, that's not a primary market, but we all have access to the same gear and the same technologies to communicate. What would you say to the other people in those small towns as far as community and networking and doing the things like you've done? You've found people in the area to work with and to to Mm -hmm. write songs with and to mix and to, to produce. Give me your take on on living in the small town and being an audio professional or producer or songwriter. Well, I'm going to have to repeat what I said earlier, which is two people working together for a common cause are a thousand strong. Yeah. And so what I would say is get out there and meet people both locally and online without falling into the pitfalls of becoming an addict to Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all that stuff. Find a balance because when you do start to grow beyond your small town, you're you're not going to want to exclude somebody just because they're in the UK. And the internet basically is your new stage and your new touring band, especially during a pandemic. There is no excuse if you want to be a performing artist. You do have a place to play, and that's that's the internet. You can play on the internet. So with respect to the small town thing, Pretty much anywhere that you look, you can find talent and you can find people with whom you have a rapport, people with whom you click, people who are making art that you love, or people who can help you make your art make it better. So get together with them. 
whether it's via Zoom or in person, just get together, start testing the waters, put more hooks in the sea. You know, the fisherman who puts a hundred hooks into the sea is more likely to catch fish than somebody who puts only one. Mm -hmm. Right. So put those hooks out there. And then the ones that are productive, you roll with those ones. And the ones that are producing nothing, don't focus on them as much. But yeah, you have to get out there, have to get out there and meet people. And also, you can create a scene. If you think back to the 50s in the doo wop era, Mm -hmm. if you had a hit record, it wasn't necessarily a national hit. It might have been in Farmingdale, New York or Petaluma. There were local radio stations. They were spinning things that they liked or things that they were paid to spin, even if they didn't like them. But the point is that the stuff starts regional. And even even as recently as uh, maybe 10 years ago, I was working with this band called Far, and they were kind of done, and they just got together for a reunion show in the UK. And in the rehearsals, they were covering this genuine tune called Pony, and they made a heavy rock version of it, very Deftones type. And it was really cool. And they recorded it. And while they were in England doing their thing, one of the guy's buddies had a friend at a radio station. He said, you got to check this out. Yeah, it's far, believe it or not. And the DJ started spinning it. And it went from Sacramento to San Diego to LA to K-Rock to being the Furious Five at Five or something like that. And when my buddy Sean Lopez got off the plane when he came back to the U.S., his phone blew up, like nearly literally blew up. Well, probably not, but his screen made an error message that, <laughs> that he'd never seen before. He's like, I didn't think it could even do that. And finally, when the smoke cleared, you know, he's getting calls from people like, dude, you guys sounded great on the radio. And he said, you're high, whatever you're smoking, send some, because we, we haven't made a record in years. And sure enough, that was on the radio. And next thing you know, Interscope's calling me to say, can we sign your band? And all I did was I helped mix a few tunes, right? You know, and consulted with them. But yeah, they're calling me and offering me cars to get this new band signed. It was just because somebody in a small town made friends with a DJ and then people reacted to the tune. Now, I'm way oversimplifying the story, and I'm, I'm sure I've forgotten quite a few details because it was a while ago. But the point is that they were being offered major label deals and they ended up signing with a major indie and doing what they had to do. Hmm. Yeah. So there are opportunities. Start locally, meet as many people as you can, make as many friends as you can. The other thing I would add is like, don't waste your life force and your time with something that's not working out. If you're trying to fit a square peg into a round hole, maybe look for a different hole or be a different peg. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to make a food analogy here. It's like if you got a meal and you start to eat it and you realize, oh, this isn't so good but I just paid for it. The tendency is to want to just continue eating what you don't even like. Yes. And, and I'm it, so and it's at that point at you that. just have to say, yeah, this isn't any good. I'm, I'm going to put this aside. Yeah. It's funny that I'm still that guy with the food, <laughs> but, but when it comes to spending my life force, my time with other people, I'm training myself to stick with the flow and not swim against the tide very personal thing that I don't know that I should say this because I may regret it later, but I'll say it anyway, because I'll bet there are a lot of listeners out there who deal with the same thing. If I were in a room with 100 people and we're all getting along, but there's one person where there seems to be some sort of a glitch, my natural tendency would be to focus on that one person and say, what's wrong? Did I do something wrong? Can we fix it? Do we need to talk about something? And sometimes people are just jackasses. They have a problem or they're going through something, whatever it is, but there's something where it's not my fault, it's not my problem, but rather than looking at the 99 people who love me unconditionally, I'll try to fix that one broken thing just Mm -hmm. because I don't like the feeling of disharmony. I'd rather be in harmony than to win at something. So with artists, you know, if there was something where it wasn't all that it could be in the past, I might work extra hard to try and make it what it could be, even if the artist was, like I said, a jackass. But nowadays, it's like if something's not flowing right away, I just say like, okay, think about the 99 people who love me instead of the one person who doesn't and stick to those 99 and 
to heck with the one. Yeah, I think it speaks to the concept of, obviously, you're not going to please everybody. Second, it's better to figure out who is not your audience, who doesn't like your mixes, or whoever is not right in your circle. You know, it's like people unsubscribing from an email list, right? Mm -hmm. Here's an example. You have people who subscribe to an email list, you send them an email, and then they unsubscribe. It's like, well, that's not a loss. That's actually a win. It's it's like yes. focus on the people that really are your audience, that are your are your team, are your people, and put all your life energy into that because there's always going to be a critic. So I believe it was Lady Gaga who was told by many people she would never amount to anything. I had people tell me before I moved to the Bay Area, oh, you'll never get a record deal. That's a one in a million chance. Yeah. Small town thinking, right? Well, yeah. Yeah. You know, the small town mentality that I've seen sometimes is that there are no possibilities here. You have to travel to the mountaintop or the metropolis, but there are opportunities anywhere that you want to look for them. I want to go back to something that you said, which is unsubscribing from an email list. You know, that can be a favor, whether you're in a small town or in a big metropolis, not focusing on those, I'll call them maybes, if there's like a yes, a no, and a maybe. And as artists, we're used to hearing no. Those no's are really a favor because you can turn them around like, okay, great. We're not doing a deal. Now that the pressure's off, can you tell me what was up? And it might be something as simple as like, I didn't like when you took your shirt off on stage. And then you say like, oh, yeah, I guess that could have been presumptuous. Probably wouldn't have made a difference though if I left my shirt on. Would it have? And they're like, well, now the pressure's off and it's a no. Like it totally would have made a difference. We would have signed you in a heartbeat uh, and outbid everybody. And they're like, okay, so it's probably too late to talk about that now if I commit to keeping my shirt on. Like, well, we could talk about that. And all of a sudden now you're talking, right? Now you're talking for real. For real, exactly. Because now you know what the problem was. Maybe is the worst because maybe you're just sort of stuck in this limbo. As far as I'm concerned, I'd rather turn a maybe into a no because then- I don't need to waste my time on that anymore. Right. Just like you're saying with the email list. And then a yes, always be scary of those yeses because if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So if you're thinking about a yes, maybe at some point before going too much further, you should tap the brakes a little bit and say like, hey, look, before we put too much life force into this endeavor that we're doing together, let's talk about it. Like, Don't you think that this is maybe too much of a commitment on your part to do this? Do you really have time for all this follow-through that you're going to have to do? So you're really going to be able to make 14 hours a week to do this thing and let them tell you if it isn't. If they tell you like, oh shit, I thought it was only going to take three. Now you know, right? But if they're like, oh, I need to do 14. Yeah, let me change my schedule. That's what we're going to do. Then you're, you're onto something. Those no's can be your favor because you may want to do 100 things today, but if you want to do something well, you might want to pick two or three. That's the quote right there. Well, we're about out of time. So for the listener, Michael, where can they first find out about you? I assume it's michaeljamesproducer.com. Yes, michaeljamesproducer.com is mostly up to date. Oh, uh, you God, know, some you're, people who you're doing what everybody does. Every single guest on this show goes, well, my website's not a hundred percent up to date, but it's still there. Okay. Let me, I want to go against the grain then. My website is freaking awesome. <laughs> you can find out everything you need to know about, uh, about Michael James. It is, it is michaeljamesproducer.com. Yes. And the name of the record is Shelter in Place. Yep. Obviously, that's available on all your traditional streaming formats. Yep, everywhere. It's available everywhere. Does that have its own separate website, or is that all found out there at michaeljamesproducer.com? You can find it in a few places. So michaeljamesproducer.com, if you go to, I think it's called Albums or Artist or something. Because remember, I'm a mixer, I'm a producer, I'm an artist. Right. Man About Town, International Man of Mystery. Bicyclist. All that stuff. (laughs) Right. So no, this is uh, the website's actually music-centric. But yeah, on the Artist or Albums page, you'll see the last two albums that I did. And other places to go to my label, alternatorrecords.com. And the roster, as of today, there are only four people showing up on the roster But I I have dozens of artists signed, and they will come December. You'll start seeing more artists up there. 
But yeah, you go to there, you can stream Shelter in Place, you can see the music videos. If people do want to support artists, we're not making really any money streaming on Spotify. There's money to be made, but it's usually not the artist that's making it from Spotify. So if you really, really, really love the album and you want to get presents for your friends and support the artists in a way where I will see most of the money and the people who are working with me to make the album available, they will see some of that money as well. Go to Bandcamp. Yeah. That's the place where I'm going to make money. Yeah. Other than a few local retailers, the physical copies are all at Bandcamp and I sell them for a premium price. But, you know, if you want a copy and you don't have that much money, just send me an email and send me what you can. We'll get something out to you. But the physical CD is actually worth buying if you're into it because, you know, it's full color. It's got a nice conceptual artwork that supports the music and it has a 20 page booklet. All the musicians are credited. There are lyrics and everything. So yeah, go to Bandcamp. I'm a, I'm a Bandcamp fan. So, hey man, it's really good to chat with you again, and I appreciate you coming back on the show. And I, I wish you luck with your endeavors with not only your record but also your your new Atmos setup. And uh, we will be uh, talking more about that between us as uh, yes. my speakers start to come in and I start to get settled in. So thank you again, Michael. My pleasure. And thank you again, Matt. I got to tell you, it was so exciting for me to even think about coming back here. I got really excited as we were leading up to this, just because it's always such a good hang with you. And I love the fact that you have this show. It's very conducive to making us feel like we're all in this thing together. So thank you. Please keep it up. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. All right. Well, you take care. You too. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Michael James here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Remember, if you have a guest suggestion, there is a guest suggestion form. Feel free to fill it out. Boy, that is some alliteration happening right there, huh? Yeah, fill that out. And if you want to reach out, of course, you can do so. Uh, always at Matt at WorkingClassAudio.com. You can, of course, reach out to me on LinkedIn as well, where I tend to dwell. I guess that's it. So I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow on the editing Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song. And Mr. Chuck Smith, beautiful voice there at the top of the show. As I said before, connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.